Welcome, everybody. Um, let me begin with a sad restrictive note. Mr. Close can't autograph copies of his books, photographs of his work of art, works of art, or anything else. So please don't ask and make me proud of Princeton. I'm delighted to see You're you all. <laughs> Sorry? You're a meanie. I am a meanie. It's a Presbyterian <laughs> university <laughs> run by Jews. So we. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Tony Grafton, Chair of the Council of the Humanities, and it's my great privilege to welcome you to the 22nd Annual Belknap Lecture in the Humanities. The program of Belknap Lectures commemorates a remarkable man, Chauncey Belknap of the Princeton class of 1912, a much-loved member of the Princeton community for many years. Orphaned at the age of three, Mr. Belknap graduated from Princeton and from the Harvard Law School, served as legal secretary to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, and worked with Generals Pershing and Marshall during World War I. He worked as a lawyer for more than 60 years as a partner in the firm of Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler, still active until his death at the age of 92. He also worked without remuneration for his university, loyally and with great virtuosity and in many capacities, from serving as marshal during the bicentenary celebrations that followed World War II, to scaring up financial and legal help for Princeton professors menaced in the Red Scare of the 1950s. This was a, a very admirable alumnus, and it's a great pleasure to honor him here. Among other things that he loved were the arts and humanities, and it was in memory of that that his family and friends created the Belknap visits and lectures in the humanities in his honor. Their generosity, for which we're immensely grateful, enables us to invite great artists and great writers from around the world to visit us in Princeton, to speak about their work, and to give us, over the years, enormous amounts of joy and enlightenment. Previous visitors have included Eudora Welty, Isaac Beshevis Singer, Nadine Gordimer, Roy Lichtenstein, Athel Fugard, Richard Serra, and last year, Don DeLillo, whom many of you heard in this same room. We thank and we salute the Belknap family, many of whom are here with us today for their extraordinary generosity. It's my special pleasure today to introduce Chuck Close, another in our series of the obviously and unexaggeratedly great. Born in the depressingly recent year of 1940, he studied at the University of Washington and at the Yale School of Fine Arts, where he received a BFA and MFA. He studied the old masters in Europe on a Fulbright scholarship to Austria. And by the middle of the 1960s, he was embarked on what has become an extraordinary, indeed an unprecedented, artistic career. From the start, he was someone of extraordinary virtuosity and fluency in many different media. With um, characteristic modesty, he has said that he could produce better Hans Hoffmanns than Hans Hoffmann and has painted more de Koenigs than de Koenig. Uh, unfortunately, it's true. He also experimented with many other media, from American flags to photographs to uh, the covers of rock albums. But by the middle of the 60s, 
He had found the road that he's been traveling down and exploring and working with extraordinary virtuosity and artistry and a deep and unique kind of craft ever since. And I'm sure you'll see very soon that incredible self-portrait that he did in 1967, the, the portrait of an artist as the quintessential terrible-looking urban hipster <laughs> on a monumental scale. It's just magnificent. Like the heads that have succeeded it, it's a shock. It's a compelling picture. It makes you do the Chuck Close dance, which one got to see people do over and over again at the Museum of Modern Art's retrospective exhibit in 1998 as they go back to see the heads take shape and then come forward to look at the media that he's used as they study the amazing range of techniques from airbrush to brush to fingertips, the amazing range of modes from cool grayscale to brilliant color that he's used to achieve this exploration. It's just amazing to watch the kind of dialogue that goes on between viewers in these paintings, as it is wonderful to read the dialogues that went on between Chuck Close and his subjects, as one can in the wonderful collection of his conversations with 27 of his sitters. He is a virtuoso of two different arts, a great photographer and a great painter, and I can't think of anyone else of whom one can say that so easily and so literally. If he lived in the period that I study, the 15th century, he would have been recognized as we now recognize Van Eyck or Dürer for their minute and virtuoso evocation of fur and velvet and skin. He'd have been the, the lost master of the nostril. For the nostril and the nostril hair and the wart play extraordinary roles in the heads that you're going to see. How to characterize this amazing enterprise of discovery and dialogue and of compelling an audience to look in a new way? Well, I think nobody's done it better than Chuck Close himself. And before I invite him to speak, let me just quote one extraordinary passage from him. Ease and facility are the enemy of the artist. If you do something for too long, you simply display how well you can do it. It becomes emptier and emptier. So what I've always tried to do is alter the variables, change the materials, techniques, procedures, processes, scale, whatever, to keep myself off balance so the search is still on and to get myself in trouble. It's important to be in trouble. No artist has ever been in less trouble than Chuck Close. Please join me in welcoming him. Thanks a lot. Actually, you should just keep talking, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sit and listen as well. It's a, uh, nice to uh, see you all. Nice to be here. Um, when I come to um, uh, a university or art school, one thing I like to try and do is talk about the route taken, what the life of an artist is like. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid and I was looking in 
art news, looking in black and white reproductions, going over with a magnifying glass, trying to figure out what these paintings look like. Uh, I had no idea what a, how it got there, how they ended up making what they're making. So um, I'm going to try and take you on a little uh, journey through my uh, through my life. Um, I um, I grew up in the state of Washington in um, sort of a poor white trash mill town, and uh, but luckily they had uh, art school. Uh, they still had art classes in the schools there. I see the problem in New York City now is uh, the first thing to go are the arts and music, and that's what saved my life. If I hadn't had them, I would be in in very big trouble. Because long before I was physically disabled, I was learning disabled. But those of you who are old enough to remember the 40s and 50s know there was no such thing as dyslexia or learning disabilities in the 40s and 50s. You were simply dumb or lazy, or both. And um, so uh, as I was growing up, I also had some neuromuscular problems that meant that I couldn't run, I couldn't um, use my arms over my head, I couldn't catch a ball, I couldn't hit a ball, I couldn't do anything. So um, all the sort of traditional ways that a, that a, that a person excels, and good in school, able to spit back facts and, and uh, dates and names and things like that. I, was, I couldn't do that. And uh, I also uh, wasn't uh, an athlete. Um, so, but early on, um, my, first of all, I had support of my uh, family. Uh, when I was five years old, I asked for an easel for Christmas. And my father uh, made me uh, an easel. And I guess about Two or three years later, it was probably maybe eight, uh, I saw an uh, ad or a thing in the Sears Roebuck catalog for a genuine set of artist oil paints. came in a wooden box, and I wanted that really badly, and I nudged until I, I, I got it. I can still smell the cheap linseed oil uh, uh, in that uh, box. And then I got um, um, art instruction from the age of eight until 11 when my father died, I had private uh, art instruction. I actually drew from the nude model, which made me the envy of all the other kids in the neighborhood. Um, and, uh, but art also saved my life in another way. I couldn't, I, I couldn't perform academically very well. So the main problem, the main job was to, to convince my teachers that I cared about the material. Um, so I would do a 20-foot long drawing uh, a mural of the Lewis and Clark Trail and schlep that in. Uh, and if they were human beings, they would take uh, that uh, as an indication that I was uh, not lazy, I wasn't interested in material, I just couldn't give them um, the, 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 uh, what they w wanted to know. Actually, the th devices that I came up with to study are very much like what's taught today for people with learning disabilities. and um, I sort of evolved them on my own. Anyway, I got, I got through school, and uh, as, um, as is often the case, when you're not good at uh, a lot of things or certain things or what most people are good at, uh, nature has some sort of way of, of mitigating for that, uh, that uh, loss by giving you um, other skills. So I did have some skills. I don't think I was extraordinarily 
uh, gifted, but I also um, probably cared more because I, you know, when you say that you're really focused, what that really means is you're probably very narrow. Uh, you're not wasting you're not wasting a lot of time doing a lot of other stuff. You're not off on tangents. The people that I know who are the most paralyzed are the people who have tremendous skills all over the place. And they could, they could do this, they could do that, they, you know, and they have a hard time figuring which one of those things to, uh, to pursue. I never had that problem. I knew this was it. If I didn't make it work, there was uh, virtually nothing else that I could uh, fall back on. So as I distinguished myself from my colleagues by making, being maybe more committed to making art than others, um, I got to be a very good student, and uh, uh, so a lot of you are students, uh, and uh, the quote about facility is absolutely true. If you don't fight as hard to overcome your facility as, as the klutz is fighting to overcome his lack of facility, that in the tortoise and hare race, that klutz will pass you by. But as I, as I got to... Um, be a better uh, student that I got, uh, I got scholarships and I got pats on the head and I got prizes and whatever. And uh, what that meant was that I had learned earlier than many of my, uh, my uh, colleagues uh, what art looks like. Uh, once you know what art looks like, it's not hard, too hard to make some of it, but it's going to look like someone else's art or it wouldn't look like art. Um, and uh, I was told I had a good sense of color. That meant that I learned that certain color combinations look more like art than certain other color combinations. Um, and I was told I had a good hand, which meant that my hands made art shapes. Um, they usually made de Kooning, and it was true. When I finally met de Kooning, which is, who is my hero, the greatest artist of the 20th century as far as I'm concerned, uh, when I finally got a chance to meet him, I said, oh, it's so nice to meet someone who's made a few more de Koonings than I've made. So, um, but at any rate, um, I found myself in the dilemma that many people do when they get out of graduate school. Those of you who are um, in school now, it even gets harder. Um, and especially if you've been a good student and you know how to make, you know what art looks like, and you can demonstrate that you know what it looks like, it's very hard to uh, purge yourself of those habits, many of which are the ones, the very habits that brought you all your success. Um, and, but you find yourself in the studio alone one day after you're out of school, and you think, what now what am I going to do? I'm no longer a student. I can't get by with just making student paintings, isn't there something that I, personal, something that's mine, something, don't I have any vision? Am I condemned for the rest of my life to just making weak uh, impersonations of other, other people's work? So that's where we're entering the uh, story here. It's now 1967. Can we uh, have the first slide, please? Um, when, I, when I was teaching in uh, Massachusetts, um, I started to work on uh, work from photographs, and one of the first paintings I made was this 22-foot-long uh, reclining nude. And uh, it was the first painting in which I, um, I worked from an, uh, airbr with an airbrush. I decided that, I, that so many of my habits were connected with the tools 
that I had facility with that I got the tools out of the picture altogether. Uh, so I threw away or gave away my favorite brushes that I had once used to pull off a painting that were now endowed with near miraculous powers and found uh, tools with which I had no facility whatsoever. I uh, had always depended on, on my good sense of color so I got color out of the picture and, and uh, it was going to work in black and white. I, I um, wanted, my hand wanted to make art shapes, so I decided to work from the photograph so that I couldn't just make art shapes. I would have to make the shape that was in the photograph. There had to be rights and wrongs. So I took my own photographs and I began to do this. I was plagued with indecision, which I still am. I can't order in a restaurant. Uh, and whatever I finally uh, order, I look at what you ordered, and I wish I'd ordered that. Um, so when I was making these paintings, I would put paint on and scrape it off and put it on and scrape it off. I, I couldn't decide when, it was a good, when I had a good start, then I'd screw it up. I was working all over. I'd put something in the upper left-hand corner, and the whole bottom of the right-hand corner would fall off, and I'd do something down here in the home. And uh, so... Uh, I wanted, I decided to work in black and white by only using black paint on the white canvas. The way you use pencil on paper, you have to save the whites of the paper. Uh, this is done with thin down acrylic paint uh, and an airbrush. Now I thought that the really important were, uh, distinction of post-war American art was its commitment to the entire rectangle, the uh, a sense of all overness. I wanted to make every piece of the painting as interesting as every other piece. I wanted to make a kneecap as, a, as interesting as a nipple. Um, the problem is, as people gravitated, uh, that when they stood in front of this 22-foot-long painting, they tended to gravitate at a couple of hot spots. Um, and uh, actually, Kiki Smith said this is the first piece of body art because of the cesarean scar and the stretch marks and uh, whatever. Uh, so it's a proto-feminist uh, work, I guess. But um, um, anyhow, the scale of the painting was still not uh, big enough at 22 feet. So I was looking around for something uh, to do. Uh, and so I had more film in the camera when I was photographing uh, the nude. And I uh, sat in front of the camera. And I measured my, the distance from my face to the lens to try and get it in focus. And I took, uh, I took photographs. Next, please. And I decided to just do the head, to lop off the body uh, and, uh, and just do the face. Now, you can see I was in there early uh, with a grunge uh, look. Um, and uh, my in-laws are, are here. My, I met my wife in, in Massachusetts when she was my student. Um, uh, back, back when that was legal, you know. Well, you know, they don't pay very well. There have to be some perks, you know. Um, and um, they were not, my, my uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law who are here were not too thrilled when, uh, when my wife brought, uh, brought me home. And you can see, uh, you can see why. At any rate, I wanted to make, I wanted to do away with the hierarchy which had been true of portraiture, uh, which has carried to its extreme in the portraits incorporated view of portraiture, where they know that the person who's purchasing a portrait only cares about the eyes and nose and the mouth and the rest you can just fudge and scumble in. 
Uh, I wanted to take this sense of all overness, which I think uh, came from Pollock, ribbons, skein-like ribbons of paint, to Frank Stella's black stripe paintings, to whatever, and apply it to the portrait. Do away with the hierarchy. Try and make every piece as important as everything else. I wanted to make a big, aggressive, confrontational image that you could see from across the room, knock your socks off. I always said, that people ask me why I make them so big. I said, the bigger they are, the longer they take to walk by, therefore, the harder they are to ignore. Um, and then I want, but I also wanted to suck the viewer right up close and uh, involve them with this really intimate um, uh, information. Um, we don't invade each other's body space. We aren't close enough to see the level of detail uh, that I, I paint. It makes them very intimate, at the, I think, at the same time that they are uh, simultaneously, uh, um, you know, confrontational. I wanted to make a Brobdingnagian kind of world. I wanted to take the face, treat the face almost like landscape, as uh, so that as Gulliver's Lilliputians are crawling across the face of the giant, they stumble over a beard hair and fall into a nostril without knowing even what they're on. I wanted to make something that's so big that at a comfortable viewing distance you couldn't see the whole thing, and you would have to scan it, and you would look at, you'd watch information get blurry as it went out of focus, and that there would be uh, uh, many ways to view it. Um, okay, next please. I tried to paint every man. You know, Warhol was painting superstars, he was painting movie stars, and I just wanted regular folks. So I. I, um, I asked my friends and fellow artists, and um, uh, I just wanted absolutely ordinary nobodies, but interesting-looking faces. So on the left is the composer Philip Glass. On the right is, uh, is uh, sculptor Richard Serra. So my attempt to make anonymous images was somehow uh, <laughs> uh, thwarted by the success. Uh, Nancy Graves, uh, painter Joe Zucker, the opera designer uh, Bob Israel, who's, uh, who has uh, relatives in the uh, room tonight. Uh, next, please. Uh, this is uh, Keith. This uh, image that I did a number of times. This is actually the same painting, and the reason why we have them on here is that uh, just to remind you that you're not looking at art. I always thought that the uh, history of art should be called the history of slides. Um, uh, because they're rendered scaleless and transparent, you don't know anything about the physicality, you don't know even what size they are, but what the surface is like. And these, uh, both, both of these are the same uh, painting, neither of which look anything like the painting. Um, next, please. Now, when I gave up regular brushes, bristle brushes, and I started working with uh, airbrush, I didn't want to trade homage to a bristle brush for homage to an airbrush. So they're very highly manipulated. The, the surface is very thin, less than a, a tablespoon of paint per nine foot high painting. I did all of the black and white paintings with one 60 cent tube of, of uh, Liquitex uh, Mars Black. It drove my, my accountant crazy because there was nothing to write off. Um, but you can see that it's eroded and scraped and, and sanded and uh, used electric erasers uh, um, and um, uh, razor blades. Uh, next, please. Um, this section of his mouth is probably about this big. So you see how highly manipulated it is. 
Next, please. Now, after um, a number of years of working in uh, black and white, I decided, okay, now I'm going to alter a variable. What will I do to push myself in another direction? And at first I thought I would change the subject matter. But if I changed the subject matter, I wouldn't change what I was doing in the studio. My work habits and the activity in the studio would not have changed. Uh, so I decided, uh, what other variable could I alter? I thought, well, I'll bring color back into the picture. Uh, but I didn't want to ret return to color the way I'd always used it. In making the black and white paintings, I used uh, only black paint on the white canvas by spraying it. It all happened in context, in the rectangle, right there. I didn't make decisions on the palette. When you make decisions on the palette out here, you hope that you made the right decision, and then when you drop it into the painting, you find out. I wanted everything to mix on the painting itself, in the painting. So in order to make a full-color painting without a palette, I decided I'd make three one-color paintings by using magenta, cyan, and yellow, which are the three process primary colors used in printing. For our purposes, we'll just call it red, blue, and yellow. So you can see on the left a, um, a study made with colored pencils. Part of it is just uh, magenta, part of it's magenta and cyan, and some of it's full color. And on the right, um, one of the first attempts to, um, uh, to make uh, a painting. You can see the eye is just magenta. Please, next. Magenta plus cyan makes the kind of purple state, and then plus yellow makes full color. The thing I like about it is it's wrong before it's right. You don't go directly to what you want. You don't conceptualize what you want and then, uh, and then illustrate that concept. I sneak up on what I want because it's wrong before it's right. You can't just leave it purple. You know, first it's red, then it's purple, and you gotta work on it until you slowly sneak up on what you want and you find it in the process Next, please. I'll just, and this is the full color painting. Now, the full color painting, I achieved my sense of all overness in one respect. That is, every square inch of the painting has the same three colors in it red, blue, and yellow. It's just the relative uh, proportions of uh, more red than blue, more blue than yellow, that determine the generic color. Uh, like the background is roughly one-third red, one-third blue, one-third yellow. They neutralize each other and make it gray. It's applied very thinly, so it's a light gray. The shirt is probably 70% blue, 20% red, 10% yellow, applied more thickly, so it's a denser, um, it's a denser darker uh, color. But in essence, every square inch of the painting is made of the same three colors. Uh, next, please. I'll take you through a painting. Um, just, just magenta, magenta cyan, next. Next, please. Uh, full color, just a magenta nose, next. Uh, purple nose, full color, etc. keep going. You get the picture. Next, please. So if you think this is boring, you should make the paintings. <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I mean that in a very particular way. Um, when I was in art school, 
you, you were assigned to make 15 paintings a semester. Well, there are only so many kinds of paintings you can make 15 of in a semester. You're not going to be able to spend a whole hell of a lot of time on each one of these guys. And, um, and I think that, um, that we have a prejudice about artists which may come from Picasso that, um, that if you're having fun, you must be on the right track. Uh, this is not something that we, um, this is not a prejudice that we extend to writers. Um, you know, uh, I, I see Joyce Carol Oates in the audience, and I don't think anybody would say to a writer, you know, six months into a novel, humped over the typewriter or humped over the wood processor, are you having fun? It just takes that long to slam that many words together, to bump one word into the next. You gotta hang in there for a while, and it's not fun in the normal sense of the word. It brings you pleasure, but it's not masturbatory. Um, when I, when I was painting, I had a lot of fun. I loved the paint. I loved the, I loved the smell. I loved sp spreading the mush and gush around and, but I didn't like what I made. So, I shaved the highs and lows off. I don't have these wild, wonderful highs, but I also don't have the crashing lows. And I found a way to work in which I add positively every day to what I do. And uh, like any other way of working incrementally, like a writer putting words together, I put these pieces together, slowly fashioning something big. And, I, and the trade-off, I don't have fun in that same way, but I have celebrations all along as I complete each piece. And it's a really wonderful trade-off, I think. Next, please. It's the finished painting of John and um, some details. You can see the, how manipulated the surface is on these as well. Now, when I could, you know, when I could make any shape I wanted, I made the same shapes over and over. Now that I'm working from photographs, I get to make you know, all kinds of wonderful, tight, detailed stuff. But I also get to make this out-of-focus shirt, and I make shapes that I've never made before. When I could use any color I wanted, I used the same colors over and over. Now I find myself using, making colors that I've never uh, done before. Next, please. Um, all right, and when the, in, the, in the quiz, like, you see the crack in the slide? I don't know about you, but when I took art history, the, the way I knew Rowan Cathedral was not Chartres Cathedral was the crack in the slide. Um, so, uh, so in the quiz later, the one with the slide, this is John, okay, that's his, uh, um, and here you can see the kind of out of focus uh, stuff that I was uh, dealing with. Next, please. Now, one of the, I'm about to have a show at the Met, and it's, um, it's now in Houston, and it's about uh, it's about prints and process and collaboration. And one of the things that's happened in my work all along is the unique work informs the multiples and prints and goes into them. And uh, in this case, this is a mezzotint that I made uh, in the early 70s. And the mezzotint is made in exactly the opposite way of the way I made the black and white paintings. Here, instead of a white canvas in which I put black paint, uh, the plate is meant to, uh, is roughened and, and, and made to print black, and then you uh, scrape and burnish into it. So you can see some proofs on the right where I'm working on it. Next, please. Here I, uh, here I am. I've just completed the first square. 
And you can see I'm smiling because I have no idea what hell I'm going to go through to get the uh, rest of it. But uh, here I am burnishing uh, the plate. Next, please. But in that print, it was the first time that I scratched a grid into the print, into the plate. And that grid stayed throughout the whole piece. So I, I exposed to the viewer the fact that they were, in fact, built out of incremental units, uh, even though they appeared to be continuous tone. But I wanted to make pieces that were, in fact, the same all over and uh, let the incremental units show. And I decided to spray uh, with an airbrush uh, stupid little inarticulate dots uh, in, into squares. Now, the, on the left is the drawing, and on the right is a, an, a greatly enlarged uh, view of it. But it's, I discovered that about 120 dots uh, is about the minimum number of dots to make a recognizable individual person. Um, and uh, this, so this is made, um, it's about postage stamp size, maybe a commemorative postage stamp. Uh, next, please. Four times as many dots, and now it's uh, like a postcard size. And you can see that clusters of these dots are beginning to be able to say pattern in his sweater, a little bit more mustache, a cluster of dots can say hair. There are thresholds at each size. Next, please. Now it's about 16 by 20 uh, image, and you can see uh, how, the, how the dots are congealing into clusters and cubbies are beginning to make the pattern in his argyle sweater. Um, we're just beginning to get the centers of the eyes and the glasses. Next, please. And this one, which is 20 by 24, four times as many dots, and now we're getting, you can even get the glasses frames and more of the texture in his uh, sweater. Next, please. I did one nine foot high, 104,072 dots or something like that. Um, geez, I used to be so skinny. <laughs> but I was already getting bald. Um, I did it in quadrants. Next, please. Um, this is the finish. Can you focus the one on the left, please? Um, you see that by now, nine foot high, 100,000 dots, individual beard hairs can be a single dot, or strings of them can become uh, glasses. Next, please. And there's nothing about the mark that says anything about what it's going to make. So there's no hair-like marks or no marks that make glass uh, or metal or whatever. You just It's just the way you put them together. Um, it's a little bit like an architect selecting a brick. There's nothing about the brick that says what kind of building is going to be made out of it. You stack them up one way and you make a cathedral, and you stack them up another way and you make a slaughterhouse. The experience of the two buildings is entirely different, but it wasn't the, the brick, it wasn't the incremental unit that made it uh, that way. There's nothing about the mark itself. Next, please. Uh, this is a black and white uh, uh, watercolor on the left. And, um, and you know, that original, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, mezzotent, went into uh, unique work, and now I'm back to making uh, uh, unique work again. This watercolor is on, on paper, it's seven feet high, sprayed with uh, the same way. 
and that then goes into uh, another multiple or print. In this case, I'm making an etching, and I'm scratching diagonal lines. Uh, and as you can see, it looks like a photographic negative because I have to make it light where it's going to be dark. It's backwards, and it's negative. Um, next, please. And this is the print in detail, which shows how it's made out of diagonal lines. Next, please. So watercolor of my wife, one of several works that I've made in, in a never-ending attempt to make one that she really likes. Um, I think they're these loving, wonderful portraits, and I don't know. She's, um, again, two slides of the same painting. Next, please. Uh, a water, this is watercolor made in three colors, exactly the same way. You see the kind of information. Next, please. My father-in-law, who's sitting here in the front row. A watercolor of him and a pastel. Um, I'll tell you about the pastels in a minute. Next, please. Um, when I make these full-color uh, paintings, um, I have to. Uh, I used to work on a forklift. Now I work. Now I have a slot in the floor, and the paintings go down on the floor on an electric easel. But if you, you can see the um, uh, the dye transfer color separations that I'm working from, just the magenta, just the cyan, the magenta plus the cyan. Over there, in the other thing, you see the yellow one sticking out. So I, I would work by making um, my, um, uh, looking at these photographs that were constantly uh, being brought up to date. What it was with just one color, what is it with two, what is it with three. Next, please. Now I really am bald. Um, can you focus the one on the right, please? It doesn't seem to want to go. Oh, there it goes. Next, please. Now, as my 30-year-old daughter is in medical school, um, but I, you know, I started to make enough money that I, I could afford to buy a few things, and I always loved pastels. Uh, and I bought every pastel in the world just because I could now afford to buy them. But then I had enough Protestant guilt and work ethic or whatever that I had to find a way to use them. Uh, and this is a pastel on the right, which is one of the uh, earlier dot pieces in color. Uh, but the dots are so small, about a sixth of an inch, that there's only room to put basically one color. Next, please. I want to take you through uh, how I recycle. This is the composer Philip Glass, the original painting. Uh, I uh, took the photograph in 68, I think, I, and uh, I've been recycling this image ever since. Sometimes I feel like I should take his photograph and lift it up into the rafters in my studio and retire it the way you retire a basketball jersey or something, because I've done so many things with him. On the right, a, a watercolor version that is uh, done with square brush strokes. Next. A kind of herringbone check thing that's just done in black and white in uh, ink. And a fingerprint drawing done with round fingerprints, just uh, inking my own finger and putting it on. I wanted to make art that couldn't be forged. 
Next, please. A random fingerprint uh, work on the left and a uh, more uh, uh, ordered left to right, top, bottom one on the right. Next, please. And uh, a pulp paper piece. Now, here's another case of how unique work becomes multiples or prints and, and then moves on. I took that watercolor that I showed you with the square strokes a little while ago, and I, I, I figured out the value of each one of those squares by sliding a Kodak grayscale with a hole, holes punched in it across it until I got a number for each gray. Uh, so then I had a string of numbers, and I tuned buck pulp from white to black and assigned them numbers, 24 grays. And this is, uh, here we are putting, um, uh, this is a wet pulp piece that we're doing uh, right here. That's the late uh, Joe Wilfer, whom I collaborated with, with uh, Sue Gosen from Dudenay, who's here tonight too, um, to make these uh, pulp paper pieces. Next, please. So here you see the a plain waffle grill like you have put over fluorescent lights in, a, in an elevator with numbers on it, and we squeeze the pulp into those spaces and we make the multiple on the, on the right. It's not a print because it's not made from a stone or a plate. It's something that you do over from scratch each time. So uh, you, you have to put out the, bring a, make a carrier sheet of wet pulp, you sink the grill into it, and each time you have to squeeze the things out uh, uh, all over. So now here the unique work becomes this multiple. In the process, we would drop uh, pulp on the floor and it would harden into little uh, Pringle-sized uh, sort of miniature meadow muffins. You know, they had a, they're formed by gravity and they'd splat on the floor and they had an irregular outside shape and they dried into the various grays that the pulp was. So they'd be light gray ones and dark grays and whatever. So I used to, I would pick these things up off the floor, had a cigar box full of them, I'd play around with them. Next, please. And I, I decided they'd be good things to make a collage with. So, if, so you see the um, the bowls on the right. I've gone. I went into kind of David's Cookies uh, mode where I manufactured these uh, these chips and all these grays, and then they're uh, uh, glued on the canvas and made into um, a, a unique uh, work, which is a, a collage. Next, please. On the left, a collage of my daughter, uh, Georgia, and uh, a close-up of what it looks like when those chips are laid almost like shingles uh, uh, to, to build the image. So here we have now a unique work uh, based uh, on something that came out of the print, uh, the multiple process. Next, please. So now I wanted to go back from the unique to a multiple again, and so instead of having the waffle grill that you see uh, with the fills that, that was a real left right top bottom grill grid we bent uh, copper uh, uh, brass shims to make an eccentric shaped grill silver soldered them together painted it white here can you see the eyes in the uh, in the one on the right uh, yeah okay still with me um, and the numbers and then next please we squirt the pulp into this eccentric shaped grill and make uh, a, a multiple. Next, please. 
I also did things like this one. I, I apologize for the Homer Simpson-esque plumber's butt picture on the, uh, on the, on the right, but um, uh, we, I did some pieces in which uh, I would call for the gray that I wanted, and they'd throw me a handful of number four gray, and uh, it was like making the world's biggest uh, pizza. Uh, next, please. Uh, a, um, uh, a color fingerprint painting uh, of uh, my, my wife, done all, also in red, blue, and yellow. Next, please. On the left, um, my wife's grandmother, um, uh, who's also my in-law's, my, my mother-in-law's mother, um, and this is a black and white finger painting uh, on the left. And, and actually, well, I would like to say, because I talk a lot about the process and about how it happens, you know, one might think that I'm only interested in the, in the process. But of course, how it happens and pictorial syntax and vocabulary is very important in art, just as it is in literature. Um, but Clearly, these are images that matter to me. I don't do commission portraits. I don't paint college presidents or CEOs. And if I'd painted the, you know, the CEO of some of these companies now, <laughs> they'd be used as dartboards anyhow. So uh, um, I'm glad I never went down that uh, uh, road. But at any rate, these are all my family and my closest friends and, other, uh, and the other family, which is uh, artists, my colleagues, and they, and they, uh, I wouldn't want it to be uh, uh, thought that I am uninterested in the uh, in the uh, subjects uh, because I talk so much about the process. Um, the uh, the the curator writer curator Robert Storr, who did my show at the Modern, talked about making uh, skin with skin and almost caressing the face of the person with, with my own hands as I use my hand as the tool. People say, how can you use your fingers and make a painting? Well, normally you have to feel through a tool. You have to feel through a brush or feel through a pencil. There's something artificial between you and the art. In, in this case, I was able to feel exactly how much paint I was picking up and how much I was putting on. But I also feel that, that I present these images straightforward, flat-footedly, with no editorial comment. They're not laughing, they're not crying. Uh, they're very neutral expressions. But I believe that a person's face is a roadmap of their life. If they've laughed their whole life, they have laugh lines. If they frown their whole life, then, uh, they have frown lines. Uh, this image is an image of someone who's very important to me and our family. Uh, Holocaust survivor, lost all of her brothers and sisters. She has the pain, but she also remained probably the most optimistic person that I knew. On the right, a color fingerprint uh, painting of my daughter Georgia. Next, please. Then I began to make oil paintings uh, that came out of making those pastels. This was an early attempt. Um, next, please. But I abandoned it for a while until I went to Japan to make a Japanese uh, woodblock print, which is what I'm working on here on the, on the right. 
um, and uh, the apprentice on the left. How are we doing for time? How long am I supposed to go? <laughs> what? Ooh, but I better, I won't tell that story then, will I? <laughs> uh, well, maybe I can tell it real fast. No, nah, I won't um, Okay. Um, I, when I went to Japan, I worked with a master printer. It was the first time I'd collaborated with somebody and let anybody else do anything. And, um, and I'd say to the, I had a translator who had spent 25 years working in Kyoto, Japan, the traditional Japanese woodblock printer, and 25 years working in the United States with Western artists at Crown Point Press. So I'd say to him, uh, tell him, I'd point to an area and say, tell him it's too green. So he'd, you know, and this guy is a national treasure. I mean, the, the printer is a national treasure, and you don't mess around with these national treasures, right? So he'd say, uh, uh, he'd, he'd start talking, and he'd talk and talk and talk, and, and, and the printer would go, oh, God, you know. Then he'd pace up and down, back and forth in the studio, oh, and he just, and he went on and on and on and on and on and on. And the, how long does it take to say it's too green? So finally when he's done, he sits down and he makes it less green. So I said, well, you know, what is it that you're saying to the guy? And he says, he says, Chuck thinks you're a genius. This is beyond his wildest dreams. Never, never did he think that anyone could, uh, could, could make something as wonderful, understand his art so well, and translate it so perfectly. There's absolutely nothing that could be done to improve it. Uh, it is perfect as it is, and you are a, a, a magician. He said. And then, however, in the interest of intellectual curiosity, not that it would be better than what you've already done, uh, it might be interesting to see what it would look like if it were a little less green. So that was uh, that was what was necessary to make one of these things. Next, please. Uh, another early oil painting. Next, please. Next, please. Actually, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, magic. Painting is the most magical of mediums, I think, because um, when you um, when you Make a, when you make a sculpture, it occupies real space just like us. You walk around it just like you would walk around another person. But a painting is just colored dirt distributed across a flat surface, and it makes space where there isn't any, and it, and it constructs situations which you relate to through a life experience, um, which is one of the things that I love about making representational painting, is every viewer, whether you're the most sophisticated art world insider uh, with great art historical knowledge, or the or, or the layperson, there is an entrance into the work through the shared, common experience of having looked at ourselves in the mirror, looked at the faces of our loved ones, looked at photographs, looked at movies, whatever. There's an entrance into the work through that shared humanity, no matter how much art historical baggage you bring with you uh, to look at it. Um, but the thing that I love about magic is that um, uh, when, um, when a painter shows his or her work to another painter, it's, um, it's a little bit like a magician performing in front of an audience of, of magicians. Uh, does, does the audience of magicians see the illusion, or do they see the device that made the illusion, or a little of both? And I think that that's one of the things that interests me. I like to drum, drop 
crumbs along the trail that show how these things happen. Demystify the process. Bring people along who are not necessarily painters, who haven't had that shared experience, and, and let them see how the thing happened. The layout, the illusion, and all the devices that made the illusion. And since Don DeLillo spoke here last year, I remember one wonderful thing that Don DeLillo said about Hemingway. He said, if you think Hemingway is about bullfights, you don't understand Hemingway. The use of the word the is more important in Hemingway than the bullfights. And I think there's uh, a lot of uh, truth in that. The pictorial syntax, the, 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 icono- the, the, um, the vocabulary that's chosen to make a work of art is the artificiality. I chafed under the word realist because it denied the equal interest in artificiality in that flat surface, the distribution of marks on a flat surface and, and what it warped into. I, I, I made a, a, a pilgrimage to Ravana to look at mosaics because I thought, well, I had to like this stuff. And uh, I was so disappointed when I got there because they were way up high in the ceiling in the dark. You couldn't see them. You couldn't see the individual tesserae. They glistened. They had gold. They had glass. But I fell in love with the humble Roman floor mosaics that you see from Rome south into Tunisia with, with where your viewing distance is your height. And you see on the floor that insistent flatness of the floor with the, with the stones and just and you see that flatness and then all of a sudden it warps into a lion or something. And just when you're comfortable looking at a lion, it flattens back out and, and says floor, flat, stones. And I could look at those I could look at those floors and it was as if I were looking over the shoulder of the artisan across hundreds of years, because it was a record of the decisions made. You could see his mind working. You could, it probably was a he, I would assume. Um, and uh, you could see him nip the corner of this stone off and nudge it in, and, the, and how a few of those uh, stones together would build the ear of a tiger or something. And it was a record of, of, of that person's thought process in, in the absolute contemporary way. I was there watching it happen. Next. Oh, on, let me just say with, with this backup one again. I'm sorry. Um, the grid is, uh, at this point, was normally horizontal vertical. I did a concentric uh, circle, one that looks like spin art. Um, and for Lucas, uh, who would be Svengali uh, if he could, or if he, if he could run for the role of uh, the job of Ayatollah, that he would do it. Uh, so I thought it was uh, interesting that uh, the kind of mind control waves coming from where his uh, third eye would be, if you believe that sort of thing. Next, please. You see the, the shapes now are about three-quarters of an inch or so, so there's room to get a couple of colors in each one. Next, please. But there's no way to make hair. There are no hair marks. Uh, now I do a diagonal grid. I turn it on its corner. This is the uh, painter Francesco Clemente. Uh, so I paint across. Next, please. What the painting looks like. And now the color is getting more... Um, more colors in each square and getting kind of crazier. This is getting bigger. Next, please. Uh, uh, photography, Cindy Sherman. If the, nobody knows what she looks like. Uh, she came in in sort of a, a school marm hairdo and glasses instead of her normal contacts. Next, please. It was really funny. When I photographed her, there was no one there. 
no one there. I put a, t- turned the camera, there wasn't anybody in there. I had to give her roles to play. And uh, I, told, I, she, I told her to look like a brancusi, and she bent into this brancusi shape. I did a profile of her, and I said, imagine you're the queen of England, and you're on a stamp. And she took this aristocratic pose. Next, please. Now, uh, at this point, I um, uh, uh, suffered a, um, well, suffered is inside the word, but it was not a lot of laughs. I had a, uh, an occluded spinal artery, and I found myself in a rehabilitation hospital uh, for eight months. And, um, and uh, my, my wife fought very hard to, uh, uh, I went into, I rolled down the hall, I looked at, saw occupational therapy. I thought they were going to help me get back to my occupation. No, no. <laughs> They're going to help you stack spools that's, uh, and thread things on, on, uh, on uh, pipe clears. Um, but my wife fought very hard to get, them, uh, to get me a space uh, to work in. And I was down in this really depressing basement space where they did art therapy stuff. Uh, and this is the first painting I made in the hospital. And two things happened simultaneously. One was... Uh, that it ended up being a profoundly sad image, even though the the photograph wasn't. And but the uh, while it was sad, it also was celebratory. The palette brightened, the colors were even brighter. It was celebrating the fact that I was able, with considerable difficulty, to be able uh, to get back to to work. Um, next, please. Uh, painter uh, Eric Fischel. Next, please. April Gornick, his wife, also a painter. Almost got cadmium poisoning just doing her lips alone. Now, you see, see how the donut shapes that are beginning. I think I must always be hungry. There are donuts and hot dogs. There's an occasional whiskey bottle in there, too. Um, but there, that wasn't intended. Next, please. But again, there's nothing about the marks that say anything about what's going to be built uh, from it. Next, please. Uh, Bill Wegman. Oh, there's a whiskey bottle. Um, Bill Wegman, um, who, you know how people start looking more and more like their dogs, you know? Uh, next, please. And uh, I did this little one of Bill, which I call the pup. Next, please. Um, now, here's another case of where unique work goes into multiples. On the left, a painting of Alex Katz in black and white. Uh, I made a reduction block linoleum cut in, in uh, Wisconsin. And here are, um, here are all the people carved. I would draw for eight hours on the block with, with a magic marker. And then they would carve for eight hours. And then we would print for eight hours. So we would go around the clock, and in eight steps, we'd move from light to dark, and a reduction block was too, too hard to explain. Next, please. Uh, here the, uh, the, play, the block is going through the press. You carve away more and more of the block is basically how it works, and print it in, sl- in darker colors. And on the right, a, uh, the final uh, print. So again, out of, out of unique into uh, multiple. Next, please. Uh, a black and white self-portrait, warm and cool grays, lots of donut shapes. Next, please. 
Next, please. All right, now, under, under these paintings, the first thing I do, I, I sneak up on what I want. So uh, a lot of color is just put on relatively capriciously and arbitrarily. And then in a series of four or five or six correcting moves, you move from, um, from something that's wrong to something that's right. But there are no, it's not made up of skin colors. It's made up of blue and pink and green and yellow and purple and all sorts of very unlikely colors. Um, and um, uh, so first it's wrong, and then a series of correcting moves go on top of that, and slowly you find what you want. But again, you find it in context, in the rectangle, adjacent to completed areas, uh, and, uh, and those decisions are not made uh, out of uh, context. Next, please. For, this is uh, Agnes Martin, who invented the grid, and, you know, so had to do one of her. She loved the painting of Fanny. She said, anybody who can make an old lady look that good can paint me, so. Next, please. Roy Lichtenstein, and this is the horizontal-vertical grid. The reason that sometimes are horizontal-vertical and some diagonal is uh, I slide grills around, grids around on top of the photograph until I see how the incremental beat of the, of the grid falls. And uh, sometimes it's more interesting to do it horizontal-vertical. Next, please, and I'll show you why. I'm almost done. Um, if this had been a diagonal grid, his nose would have been a ski jump. It would just have been a big diagonal. But by making it horizontal-vertical, your eye, eye splashes down his nose like water over rocks on a waterfall. It makes a very different experience. And then, of course, I got a chance to make this Dick Tracy square draw a jaw, which I thought was a nice kind of art pun for somebody who made his living out of making, working from comics. Um, part of my old men with ponytail series. Next. Uh, the, the, the painter Dorothea Rockburn. Next. Lorna Simpson, photographer and video artist. Next, please. A, a couple of rather grim self-portraits. Next. Uh, Bob Rauschenberg. I tried to get him not to smile, and he couldn't do it. <laughs> I tried to get Jasper to, to smile, and he couldn't do it. So. <laughs> Next. Uh, my friend Mark uh, Greenwald, a great painter, who I painted early, that early goofy painting of the guy with the, with the glasses. This is the same guy many years later, one of the, one of the ones that I've done over again until I get it right. Next, please. And uh, a more recent self-portrait. By now, this, the pieces are really very big and lots of colors on each one. Next, please. People ask me how I can, how, how do I go back from the paintings? If I did, I'd never finish them. So I make all the decisions right here within arm's length. But people say, how can you know what you're going to, what it's going to look like from a distance? What I'm doing is the equivalent of a color, of a musical chord. A composer can go in a room with no musical instruments and assign a note to a, a oboe, another note to a bassoon, another to a French horn, and, and he or she will know what that resultant sound, when played together, what that chord will sound like. I know if I put this pink, that blue, that green, that yellow together, that uh, they will uh, melt in your mind 
you know, from a distance that we used to say in the 60s, um, and that uh, what that resultant uh, color uh, will be. There's a lot of pretty goofy shapes in there, too. I think. Next, please. Next. And one last uh, self-portrait. Okay, thank you very much. draft of my introduction, I also said he's an extraordinary, civic, generous man, a great colleague, a great friend, and a great speaker. But then I cut that because I knew it wouldn't be necessary. <laughs> let me invite questions. I'll try to keep order. Uh, first, let me say you've all paid the price enough that I will turn my back and you can leave and I won't feel bad. Uh, you've, 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 you've done your duty. Only those people who are real gluttons for punishment can stay for the, uh, uh, the question and answers. Yeah. Take his name, will you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. You are a glutton for punishment if you heard his speech earlier this week. The question, uh, let me just refresh yeah. the people here. The question is what uh, Chuck Close is doing now in current experiments with daguerreotypes. Yeah, all, you know, I, I uh, never thought of myself as a photographer because I only made photographs to make paintings from. And then at a certain point, I, I started making uh, Polaroids and I'd have a model come and maybe I got the photograph I wanted the very first shot. Well, it was, didn't want to waste their time, so I took more and more pictures. So I, I realized that I must be, uh, I sort of reluctantly realized, oh my God, I'm making photographs that I'm not going to make paintings from. Could it be? Am I a photographer? Um, and uh, so uh, I've uh, had a parallel career uh, as a photographer, which is uh, I love because the rate of you can move through a series very quickly. My paintings move very, uh, you know, a kind of novelistic time frame. Uh, so I enjoy making uh, photographs. And the thing that I love about um, daguerreotypes, first of all, it's the first form of capturing an image from about 1840, and uh, it's before there was film and paper. And it's a, a sheet of copper that's been silver-plated, polished, exposed to iodine and bromide gases. It then goes into a film holder. It's exposed. Uh, you, you, you take a regular 8x10 view camera, pose the model, and then you put the plate in, expose it, go back into the dark room, and mercury vapor uh, develops it. Mercury is extremely poisonous. The, in Alice in Wonderland, uh, Lewis and Carroll used the Mad Hatter and hatters used felt, made, made hat out of felt, which was rabbit fur combined with uh, 
with mercury, which is very uh, hazardous, very, and they all went crazy. That's why you're mad as a hatter. Um, but we try not, we only poison pigeons. The, uh, the, um, ga the gas goes outside where we're doing a service by ridding the city of a, of a few pigeons. But um, the thing I love about it is that, uh, that there, in my, from my view, photography never got better than it was in the 1840s. Um, now I make big, oversized, huge photographs that are inkjets and you stand in front of those the way you stand in front of a painting. Ten people can stand in front of one of those at the same time. But there's something about the intimacy of these uh, daguerreotypes which require the active participation of the viewer. You have to adjust yourself to see it. And it's intimate. It's like holding a book in your lap. No one else can look at it while you're looking at it. And it's just your relationship with it. Uh, and an unbelievable range of grays and wonderful uh, uh, focal differences. And I mean, they're just incredible. Uh, the object status of a daguerreotype is unlike anything else. Uh, and I'm having uh, a lot of fun. It's very costly, but it's a lot of fun. Leonard. Mm -hmm. As you said, uh, sometimes the images themselves are staged, sometimes you in front of them. Are those works of art too? What, what is the state? The photographs of document making the art? Yes, what, what's the state of those? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because there is detritus in the art making process that falls along the way, some of which is souvenir status, you know. Uh, some is. Um, you know, uh, documentation for that's uh, that's good for books and things like that. Uh, but this exhibition that I'm having at the Met, this pro the idea of process and collaboration, is really the stuff that I love the most. It is the stuff that generated the piece, but that nobody ever sees. The stencils, the plates, the grills, the the uh, uh, and all the progressive proofs so that you can look at a wall and understand how it happened without reading a wall text. Um, geez, I've really been like bashing art historians tonight, haven't I? Um, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, you, you can you can this you can discern, you can you can um, feel, you can intuit from looking at the visual evidence how this thing happened as it goes through its steps. Um, and, uh, you know, so everything, I like everything that, uh, and there also are photographs in the exhibition of the prints being made to try and explain what the, what the room was like, what the presses were like, what the, you know, what, what, what ha how it happens. You know, even print curators often don't know how prints happen or how art gets made. And uh, like I say, I like to drop uh, crumbs along the trail for people uh, to pick up, and they can. Uh, it's an exploded plan view of a work of art that you then it's deconstructed and you reconstruct it in your mind. Uh, and I think it's. Um, I love sharing that. And also, I didn't make them. The printers made them. The printers made the stencils and whatever. They're marked up because they're practical. They're just the way they have to be. And they're beautiful without being self-consciously beautiful. They're not aesthetic objects. They're, they're things that were essential to the making of this uh, product. Um, and I really love sharing. The show opened in Houston. I really love sharing this stuff that I've collected over the years 
which 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 explain how art happens, which is as uh, uh, a record of the thought process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you describe yourself interiorly or in terms of how you feel you are in your world is now compared to that? Well, you know, I was just... Uh, Let me just summarize okay. mm-hmm. below. Um, the question is how he would how he would reflect on his own interior development over time as opposed to what we've seen. Well, you know, I don't do uh, art for uh, therapy. I do therapy for therapy. So I've spent 25 years trying to figure out what makes makes me tick. Um, the uh, when I was in the hospital and I was in intensive care and I thought you know I was paralyzed from here down and I wasn't sure I was ever going to make uh, any uh, more art. I thought, well, I saw the guy next to me was praying and everybody around him was praying. I thought, gee, you know, I was an atheist. You know, what am I supposed to do? And I thought, well, gee, maybe I ought to pray too. And then I thought, nah. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't respect any God that would listen to me now after I spent my whole, my whole life uh, putting him down. But um, I'll tell you what I think has sustained me. And uh, what has sustained me is that I am by nature a nauseatingly positive human being. Uh, and I... Some people are positive, for which we can take no particular credit. It's just our nature. And other people are, are you know, are negative. Um, and it's not, maybe positive or negative. Uh, optimistic and pessimistic, uh, wh- wh- however you want to put it. Um, but no one should be punished because of their nature, just because they're not the most optimistic person in the world doesn't just who they are. But I saw in in rehab a very interesting thing because there's a blame the victim kind of thing going on. You some people work their butts off and they were there in physical therapy every day and they and they they never they never cut out of anything and they worked 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 and they never got better at all. And somebody else who was a whiny pain in the ass who wouldn't do anything, refused to go to physical therapy, they'd get better and they'd walk out of there. So life is not fair. And if you're, it isn't, you know, it's not, you can be dealt a winning hand and still manage to lose the game of poker. Or you can be dealt a losing hand and make it a winner. But I think that it's, that I'm lucky, I'm just lucky, I've always been lucky, been in the right place at the right time, been in schools when it's the absolute optimum moment to be in that school. I, I still think I'm lucky. People sometimes think that's strange that you can be confined to a wheelchair and have hands that don't work and be lucky. Uh, of, the, of the 15 years that I've been in a wheelchair, I've been 15 of the happiest years of my life. Um, and. I was, uh, I was uh, 40, my father was 48 when he died and I was 11. I was 48 when I became a quadriplegic. And I started to mark each uh, day, each month, each year that I had 
after being a quadriplegic as a, a time that I had with my uh, wife and my children that my father didn't have with me. So it really turned the whole thing around and made it uh, a gift. Um, so, and I'm just I'm a very lucky guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. If I if I had hair, I you know I love hair as topiary. You know I would I would have a green mohawk. I would do I any I, you know nature does uh, has has punished me by putting all the hair on my back. Well, yeah, I don't want marks that are symbols for things, you know, where you just make a hair-like mark, and that's going to stand for hair. Um, I, I wanted to construct a situation that read like hair, but didn't have to resort to symbolic uh, marks. Um, the greatest painters in my mind are the people who, not, not necessarily the people who painted with one hair brushes, but if you look at that great Velasquez portrait of his black assistant at the Met, there's a kind of economy, there's a kind of pictorial syntax which is unbelievable, where a few strokes make a hand. Um, compare that to, um, to uh, uh, what's his name, the, the, uh, the American, we were just talking, I was talking to one of the students today. Um, Eakins? E no, well, I don't like Eakins either, but, uh, <laughs> uh, no, uh, hmm? Sergeant who also had that kind of economy, could make a hand out of four or five brush strokes. But his became formulaic. He had a way to make a hand out of four or five brush strokes. Uh, and he resorted to that over and over. But, but the Velasquez is transcendent. It is un, it's mesmerizing that somebody could take those few strokes and make that hand. Um, way in the back. I know, you want to ask some of them? <laughs> <laughs> Let me just repeat that. Have any subjects ever reacted oddly or interestingly to seeing themselves blown up to many times life size? What do you, what do you think? I choose not to answer that. <laughs> uh, a couple of people actually anticipated the problem. Joe Zucker, um, who had like curly Harpo Marx kind of hair, he got a haircut, he greased it down with Vaseline, he borrowed someone else's glasses, he wore a white shirt and tie, and for a hundredth of a second he looked like a Midwest used car salesman. <laughs> um, and then I made the photograph, took the, the painting, and he went home and washed the stuff out, and he never had to worry about it. I referred to the ones of me, often I would say him, because, you know, you really have to get a little uh, uh, distance from it in order to be able to do it. Yeah. It's um, so fascinating to follow your career and the total progression of painting and the progression of your mind in your presentation tonight. Thank you. Um, you had um, such a, a you know, great relationship with Kurt Barnett, though. Yes. 
Well, I have to I have to speak at his memorial service in a couple of weeks, and I I am at a loss uh, for words because I would like to return to him something of what he gave me. Every artist should have the experience of having their work described by somebody who was as articulate and, uh, and you know, he, w- he was mesmerizing, uh, dazzling speaker, but not just that. He, you know, he cut to the chase, he understood uh, how art happens, he was friends of artists, he married an artist, you've got to really be a friend of artists to marry one, I think. Um, and uh, when we when, when Leslie and I would go to his birthday parties or something at his house, there were always more artists there than there were art historians or or or, um, or curators. I mean, he really felt at home uh, with artists, and it was uh, he also gave me the opportunity uh, to do. He, I'll tell you a personal thing. I could have been seen as damaged goods when I was came out of the hospital. I could have been seen as a handicapped artist. And it was largely Kirk who gave the good, the Museum of Modern Arts good housekeeping seal of approval to my post-hospitalization work, which made me, made the art world see me as back again and, and as making work which the modern, through Kirk, thought was up to the quality of the work that I'd done before it. And uh, I, that was an incredible uh, thing to do for me, and really, I think, saved my uh, career. He also gave me the opportunity to do the, one of the Artist's Choice exhibitions in which I raided the cultural icebox and put 130 works from all the departments, photography, prints, drawings, uh, sculpture, painting, uh, into one small room. And I think that also let, that happened shortly after I got out of the hospital, let the art world know that I was back and that, you know, I had whatever faculties I had before, um, and uh, gave me visibility. So from a personal point of view, uh, uh, he was, um, uh, a, you know, a, a great uh, friend, mentor, colleague, um, and he he wrote about me a lot and talked about me. And he wrote the essay for my last uh, uh, Pace Gallery exhibition last uh, fall. Yeah. What's the favorite part of the process? You know, it's it's. I like every part of it. Um, I I must say though, because I celebrate each little piece being finished. Um, but I must say that the that the last day, uh, I put on Aretha and I the greatest hits, and I I crank her up full blast and I sing along with her uh, and uh, and that's how uh, that's part of the ritual celebration of the final strokes the final adjustments the the fine tuning 
You know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of things that are like uh, writing. The first, my first trip through is like a rough draft or a stream of consciousness, just say anything. The next are, are the corrections and, and uh, uh, editing, toss this out, put that in. Uh, and then uh, ultimately the sort of final edit, the final, you know, thing that um, is that uh, celebration. So I guess I'd have to say there's something about the last day, but it's like painting the Brooklyn Bridge, you know. Uh, the minute I get to the uh, end, I have to start all over again, so. Um, but I, I enjoy it all. Oh, I would, oh, let me say one thing. And uh, There's so many women um, artists today who are so interesting. And uh, I saw today at the art school virtually everybody, there was only one male student that I saw the whole day, I think. Um, and um, I, I wanted to say the relationship that I think I have to women's work, what used to be called women's work. And my, my grandmother, I just learned, recently figured this out in therapy after 25 years, how important my grandmother was to me. My, when my father died, we moved next door to my grandmother and grandfather, and I would come home from school and I would spend every day with her. And she had busy hands. She was always crocheting, knitting, quilting, whatever. Um, and she used to crochet these little stars with no pattern, each one different. And then she would crochet those together until they eventually made a banquet-sized tablecloth, which she would stretch on a wooden stretcher in the backyard and starch. And the whole idea of building something complicated, big and complicated, out of incremental units uh, and putting them together, I think, probably has something to do with her. And uh, I remember uh, the whole concept of time. I don't think time is important in art. I'd rather have a 30-second drawing by Matisse. You know? I don't care about time, but you better, you better put the time in. I remember we were watching, used to tell you how old I am, I remember watching the McCarthy hearings on, on television. We didn't have a television, she did, so I'm over there watching it. And she's knitting away, and she's about three months into a sweater with cables and different colors, and really complicated, again, all out of her head. We're watching the, the hearings, and she, all of a sudden she starts unraveling this sweater and rolling it back up into balls of yarn. And I said, how can you throw away all that work. And she said something to the effect, well, if it doesn't make something you want to make, you can't afford to keep doing it. Uh, and I think all of these, all these things, women have, um, because of my learning disabilities and my nature, I'm, I'm a nervous wreck and I'm a slob and, I'm, and, and, and whatever. I think I needed to find something that was um, zen-like, like raking gravel. I need to find a way to work where today I'm doing what I did yesterday and tomorrow I'll do what I do today. And women had to, you know, like, like feed, feed the baby, put the baby down, knit, go, uh, go out and weed the garden, come in and knit, uh, start dinner, come back and knit. It's a way you can pick something up and put it down and just keep working on it. A belief in process. If you sign on to a process, how do you make a sweater? I don't know. But if you knit one and pearl two long enough, eventually you get a sweater. I found a way to make art that is really indebted to that kind of belief in process. And that if you sign on to something you and, and you hang in there, you will eventually uh, get somewhere. Uh, so uh, it's... Uh, 
Last question. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, you know, watching... Uh, oh, you want to repeat the question? Now, is there a connection between this sort of sneaking up on what you want to do in the painting and de Kooning, whose work was so important for Mr. Close? Yeah, I, I'm reminded of, um, uh, uh, you know, they did a documentary of de, of de Kooning. And, um, you know, he painted all day, and the cameras were rolling, and then painting and painting and painting. And, and uh, they, the end of the day, they're all congratulating each other. They got all this wonderful film footage. Uh, and they came back the next day to pick up their cameras and whatever. And he'd scrape the whole painting off onto the floor. And they said, what happened to our painting? We just documented this painting. He said, oh, he says, I don't, that's not how I make a painting. <laughs> he said, since I make a mark, and I go back and I sit down and I look at it for a half an hour, and then I go up and I make another mark, and then I go back and I sit down and look at it for a half an hour. <laughs> but he said, that would have been any good for a movie. Nothing, nothing would be happening. It would just, you would just have a guy sitting in a chair. So he said, so he said, I made a painting, you know, I made a painting for you. So it, it, what happens is it documents a, a fiction. But I think that, um, I I didn't learn how to make a de Kooning the way de Kooning made de Koonings. I, you know, I, I made, I imitated the surface without, you know, I was, I was good at imitating it. Um, but I, you know, I do think that um, each artist has to find his or her um, vocabulary, or, or personal vision, voice, whatever you want to call it, and that uh, a lot of it is embedded in the process. That that's where the rubber meets the road, is uh, is is the 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 how, um, and um, each each person has to. I mean, no painting ever got made without a process. But problem solving in our society is greatly, greatly overstressed. Problem solving means that everybody agrees often. This is true in industry, it's true anywhere. The problem at the moment, everybody decides, this, okay, well, how am I going to solve it? Well, how are you solving it? And how are you solving it? How are my heroes, how would my heroes solve it? Problem solving is greatly uh, overemphasized. On the contrary, I think problem creation is much more interesting. If you can, if you can back yourself into your own idiosyncratic corner, where nobody else's answers will work. If you ask yourself the right question and you follow the, the process wherever it goes, chances are your solutions will be more personal and will not look like uh, uh, your neighbor. And you're about enough? Just for one second, think what we've seen. You see the magician, he's on stage, top hat and tails, the doves are flying, the cards are being sorted, you can't imagine how it's done, you're dazzled. Then he takes off his coat, he shows you the trick pockets, he shows you the machinery, and it's still magic at the end. Thank you so much.